0: Welcome to you all for the latest episode of European Movement Ireland's Just the Chats podcast. I'm delighted that we're going to be joined by two very special guests for today's episode. Firstly, one of the leading lights of Ireland's journey into the very heart of Europe, and in fact, I think the last remaining survivor of Ireland's Yes for Europe campaign, Mr. Neville Keary. So a very warm welcome to you, Neville. Delighted to to have you with us. And I'm also delighted to be uh, joined by our EU50 uh, project lead, my colleague, Ryan Leavis. So, Ryan, a very warm welcome to you all. I'm really looking forward to today's very special Just the Chats podcast as we look forward and reflect on, in fact, Ireland's EU50 journey. We are in very distinguished company with Neville, who had a ringside seat at all the major events and background to what led up to not only the referendum, but Ireland's uh, joining with the formal accession treaty. So in that regard, I'm going to hand over to my colleague Ryan, who is going to pose some comments and questions to Neville. I'm really looking forward to the conversation.
1: Yeah, thanks very much, Noel, And Neville, again, thank you very much for joining us today for what is undoubtedly going to be a a great and very interesting discussion and um, I thought maybe where we could start is even we can go right back to the absolute start and discuss perhaps your decision to even get into politics what motivated you in that kind of particular direction?
2: Uh, well interestingly enough um, and it's still one of my primary interests I'm a philosophy graduate of TCD which at the time was called Mental and Moral Science and it wasn't obvious uh, what career one was going to go for and apart from uh, my studies where I became a scholar in mental and moral science uh, I was also of all the universities in the, my final year I was the leading Irish debater and I got to the final of the Observer Mace, as it was then called um, in the Guildhall in London way way back So I've been used to debating anything and everything uh, at the drop of a hat, as they say. And I also had worked a bit on the newspaper Trinity News, which I think still survives. And they had a thing called the Milk Round. I don't know if they have it still, where leading British and other companies come over to meet final year students uh, to give them an opportunity to see what might be available. And at that time, I thought probably journalism might be my best bet. And I never managed to get an interview in Ireland uh, to become a journalist, but I got recruited. uh, And all these things, I think, may not even exist anymore because of the change in the newspaper world and so on. I got a job with Westminster Press Provincial Newspapers And everybody thought, you know, that would mean I'd be going to work for the Guardian or something like that. Not at all. Um, My first job was as a reporter on a newspaper called the Blythe News, which was a weekly newspaper in Blythe in Northumberland. And I did the three-year traineeship with the Westminster Press, and I worked in Blythe, which was a weekly paper, on an evening paper in South Shields, and on an evening paper in York. And then, when I decided it was time to look around, see if I could get a job in Ireland, uh, my mother used to send me the advertisements and so on. And I got a job as an administrative officer in the Institute of Public Administration in Ireland, where at the time, and he still, in my view, is one of the outstanding. Um, Irish leaders of the uh, 20th century was led by Tom Barrington whose name may be widely known and particularly he had a particular interest in Kerry and wrote I think an outstanding book on on Kerry but he was also um, a terrific administrator he had become director of the Institute of Public Administration from a senior job in the department of local government and he set up this and he was an admirer of the Royal Institute of Public Administration which was the UK public administration thing I mean just an aside but it's quite funny um, uh, for example they thought and this was uh, there'd been a lot of change in li- Libya and Gaddafi was uh, in power but there were progressive people in Libya who had been trying to do quite a lot of change and they thought they were about to open an institute of public administration in Libya and Tom Barrington went out to the opening and at the opening Gaddafi announced it would become a maternity hospital And, uh, (laughs) uh, uh, and, uh, and, and that was that so I mean they were very interesting times and Tom Barrington had asked me um, because of my background in local journalism and one thing and another to look into the possibility of establishing branches of the Institute of Public Administration around the country. So I travelled the country a lot meeting uh, city and county managers and one thing and another and um, unfortunately I came to the conclusion that there was no way I could deliver on this, that I couldn't find people who I really felt were interested enough and would be strong enough to support branches of the Institute. So after quite a short time, I left the Institute. Now among the things, again, I don't know if these things happen now, but what I felt was one of my big contributions at the time I'm not sure how many other people it helped, but it helped me a lot, was I set up a program of evening lectures uh, for members of the Institute. At the time, it was held in the premises of the SRI, which then became, I think, the Health Institute or something, on Bagot Street in the evenings. And the three things I remember really well was I brought in the... Head of IBM Ireland to talk about the likely impact of computerization on public administration. I brought in um, uh, uh, White was his name, I think the director of the National Gallery to talk about what the public service could do to promote art, you know, buying more pictures and one thing and another and what was the third one, there was a, 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 a third one, yes, there was art computing, and um, I f- forget the third one for the minute, uh, but that meant that when I went on to work later on myself, I had had <laughs> a good primary introduction mm-hmm. to uh, computing and um to the likely impact of what public administration could do for art and so on. And, oh yes, and I think I brought in a top economist as well to talk about the likely economic future. So even if I didn't succeed in educating many people, I educated myself. And <laughs> it, 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 it was extremely, um, extremely valuable. And the things I learned from... Tom Parrington for example was he told me and this is true of Europe true of everything probably true of yourselves is you always have to remember that when you make decisions the consequences may well not be entirely as you expected and you'll get surprises uh, uh, along the way and you need to be ready all the time for unexpected consequences and of course at the moment we're living through a period of huge unexpected consequences mm-hmm. so small little principal things like that I learnt along the way and the job I got then when I left um, the institute was I in- joined a chap called Dermot Montgomery who is, is still alive in the careers and appointments office in Trinity and then I was promoted to be a secretary of, an assistant secretary of the college and was in charge of admissions at one stage, and then oddly enough, of the science and engineering faculties. So I had quite a lot of a, a experience. And you asked, I mean, that's a long ramble, but you <laughs> asked me about how I got involved in politics. Well, when I came back to Ireland, I spoke to Tom Barrington and I said, Look, I said, I'm thinking of joining FINAFOR and I'll also be quite active I hope in the Irish Film Society so I still have a big interest in films and later on when I retired did a degree in film studies in UCD but the reason for my joining Fianna Fáil was when I came back I saw that Lamas as Taoiseach was really trying to be a reformer and that he needed support And I said, I'll have a look at the local political party I was living um, with um, in my mother's house in Dorky at the time. I would make contact with Fianna and sure enough they followed up my letter and um, a chap appeared at my doorstep and said I'd be welcome to come to a common meeting and so on. And I got involved that way. And of course I had a lot of local political experience. On a local paper you learn how to get on with absolutely everybody and I had attended lots of party political meetings and local authority meetings in Northumberland which again was uh, going through a very interesting period because Alf Robins who became Lord Robins had been a huge figure in the labour movement was the TD for Blythe and there was all sorts of interesting things happening. Um, to find his successor and so on, and also I always remember going to a meeting of the local Labour Party in Blind, where um, the main speaker, who was probably uh, the, the the new TD, said that you know there was no way uh, Britain was going to have any interest in Europe and the Coal and Steel Community and so on. So I mean I had a bit of uh, background. And I realized when I got into the common in, in Dokey, where they had very distinguished people ranging from um, the Colum Condon, who became an attorney general. I think the late Michael Yates, for example, was he lived in Dokey, And as you know, he um, almost became the first Irish president of the European Parliament when he was a member of the European Parliament. And then there were all the ordinary local people um, uh, who. who I, I, I think that's the thing about politics, and it's still one of the differences, I think, between uh, Fianna Fáil and Phila Gale, and people like the late Brian Lennon, both Brian Lenahan Jr., who so died so tragically, and his father, who I knew terribly well. Um, Fianna Fáil people. Are the in many ways people of small shopkeepers, small businesses, and have a huge amount of ordinary trade union support and so on. So I quickly found that this there's a kind of there are people who recognise each other as Fina fallers in part because of the, the people they attract and the people they get to know on the ground in the organisation in various ways. So I decided. I could make a run for this myself. So I have stood as a candidate unsuccessfully in general elections in Dunair Ratan. But the huge thing um, is, I got elected as what's called constituency delegate, where you're a member of the national executive of the party. And most of the constituency delegates from all the, the constituencies around the country don't come up for the meetings every, every, uh, I think it's every two weeks. There was a meeting on a Monday evening in Man Street and Man Street just around the corner from here became my home for quite a while and um, I was a huge admirer of the late Tommy Mullins who was not only the General Secretary of Fianna Fáil but was leader of the Senate when I ended up in the the Senate. And um, there you meet, first of all, it's the of the leader of the party who presides, but then you, there are the honorary secretaries, the honorary treasurer and so on. So that big names like hahi and Blaney and Hederman and uh, Kevin Boland, I met and got to know all these people and have always had my ups and downs. Uh, uh, and as you know, sometimes Fianna has hasn't been as enthusiastically European uh, as it might. But I mean, to give an example, I've always had an interest, and this is the thing that is often overlooked but is hugely important about Irish accession and membership, is that every country needs a good regional policy. And uh, a chap called Buchanan had been brought over from the UK to the, do the first good regional study of Ireland, and he came up with—he um, was the first person to mention the idea of growth centres, which you'll appreciate and are absolutely crucial. And at the time, I spoke to Neil Blaney, who was Minister for Local Government, um, about growth centres, and said, "I thought Andy." Uh, his reply often, which I got from people, look, Neville, he said you're always this liberal intelligent person taking a broad long-term view but life doesn't necessarily work like that. And he said I believe in the watering can policy and he said the watering can policy which was that everywhere you tried to get into every town a factory which would mean something to people and employ people and so on. And that was the whole idea. You didn't need any theoretical uh, model. You were trying to get a factory into every town. But the most effective example I ever saw of that was one of the new factory owners created in the first um, um, push at that time. uh, Went to his local bank and said he wanted to be able to pay the weekly salaries of everybody who worked with him in new notes. And he got new notes, and everybody in the area, whoever saw a new note, (laughs) said this is what it means when you get a factory on a business and so on. And another person, perhaps I can switch on further ahead, now I mentioned this, Uh, Anyway, eventually, as a result, after one general election in 1969, um, Jack Lynch nominated me to the Senate, and I was then working in in Trinity and so on. And that had various consequences. I mean, one of which was I was asked to get involved in the uh, European movement. But I'd already been known in a number of areas, uh, like like, um, family planning anti-apartheid, various things like that. So I was sort of, uh, when Jack Lynch spoke to me, uh, the only instruction I got, he said, look, Neville, he said, we need people who can speak up in the Senate. Do your own thing and say whatever you like, whenever you feel like it. So, of course, that was grand. Later on, when we got to the um, European campaign, um, I was given the possibility of moving into Fianna Fáil headquarters as a staff person, which I did. For the campaign? For the campaign. Um, and Well, it, it could have been indefinitely, because they badly needed a research and information officer, and I did various other, other things. I think I was the first person to pre- prepare briefings for, that's non-civil service briefings, for the uh, Fianna Fáil Parliamentary Party when new legislation was about to be introduced. Now you couldn't run a campaign for anything without social media and mobile phones. There were no mobile phones in those days and if in the middle of a campaign about Europe you absolutely needed a quote from the Minister for Labour who was Joe Brennan who was up in Donegal how the hell did you get a quote? And again, you probably well, are probably not old enough to know. You would ring the local exchange and ask, "How oh, is there any <laughs> sign of Joe Brennan making a phone call?" and so on. <laughs> and you'd be able to run people down uh, through the local uh, telephone exchanges and so on, which is a completely different world to anything people can imagine now. So the campaign was
0: run in the analogue era, Neville. Oh, absolutely,
2: yes. And virtually no opinion polls, so that we had no um, idea. There is, uh, and it may well be the only copy outside the uh, public service. Um, I think there is a copy in my papers in Cork of a survey which was done by the Department of Foreign Affairs a bit before any campaign started. Which showed that we should make it, but not in any dramatic way. And this all arose, it like getting on track again, because Paddy Hillary, who was the Minister for Foreign Affairs, the chief negotiator of Irish accession, was also the director of elections for the campaign by Fianna Fáil and in Fianna Fáil the director of elections is a very important uh, person and he set up um, a committee which he asked me to uh, manage which would in effect be running the campaign from headquarters and I know we're now back to regional policy one of the people, because the terrific little committee, they're all dead sadly Noel Mulcahy, I don't know if you remember the late Noel Mulcahy who became a professor of engineering in Limerick and was in the Irish Management Institute at the time. He was a member and he had worked as an advisor in the Department of Education and his huge initiative was to start these regional technological institutes and I remember my last conversation with him Before his death, he said he thought the creation of those institutes would be seen as the most effective instrument of regional policy that the country has ever seen. And you'll probably agree with me, I think he was absolutely correct, because as you know, they were tremendously successful in different areas around the country. And they're all now combined into new universities and goodness knows what. Technological yeah. universities, yeah, absolutely. Yes. And they've had a huge effect. Well, you see, um, there was myself, there was Lake Noel Mulcahy, then he brought with him, or she arrived from the Irish Management Institute, a woman called Noreen Slattery, and she eventually. And again, you have to remember for Fianna Fáil, and parallel with all the, this campaigning um, that was about to happen, there were huge internal problems in Fianna Fáil because Jack Lynch had just sacked Hockey and Blaney uh, because of the uh, so-called arms affair. And um, the PDs eventually emerged out of all this, and Norrin Slattery. Um, eventually left Fianna Fáil and became the first Secretary General I think I'm right in saying of the Progressive Democrats she was an absolutely remarkable person and when I say I was Secretary of the Committee she was the person really who kept the minutes and kept the thing on the rails and I was Secretary in the broad responsibility sense so there was Noel Mulcahy Noel Mulcahy
1: Could I ask, Neville, just um, on that, what was, you mentioned Jack Lynch, what was the influence of Jack Lynch, I suppose, as a figure and a personality during the referendum?
2: Um, Well, it was absolutely huge. um, Because, again, we all assume now that there will be a Taoiseach's tour Mm. for every election. That was some completely new thing. We were the first people to do a Taoiseach's tour and um, the person uh, uh, who, who organised the T-shirts tour was one of Ireland's leading civil engineers, a brilliant fellow called Owen Kenny, who had offices um, on Killare on Street and so on. And Owen Kenny uh, devised a map so that you could go around the country without going back on your tracks anywhere (laughs) and visit every crucial spot. So Jack Lynch set off on this Taoiseach's tour and again the thing you have to remember about Jack Lynch which is not, well it's it's very political but it has nothing to do with um, uh, Europe or what have you, is that Lynch apart from being Taoiseach you know he was this huge popular Former sports star in football and hurling and so on. And Paddy Hillary went to, on, on one of these visits to a town in the west of Ireland uh, with Jack Lynch. And he came back, and I mean, I think this is a direct quote he said to me walking down the main street. <laughs> was like walking with Coo (laughs) 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 and and, you know so that he was a huge figure in that sense and of course was the face on the posters and so on and again if I shift then because obviously our committee had to think about things like slogans and all that kind of thing and um, uh, the the and, and we did a lot of this, you know, just writing. You probably do this here yourselves, right? Or writing down lists of slogans, just like that, to see what comes out. And um, nothing has changed, <laughs> Neville. Nothing has changed. No, no. And we we came up because I've often been accused when people here i in, 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 involved in this stuff, they say. But we were all misled during the campaign, and I said, well, I don't know what you're talking about. I said because I can tell you the two Fianna Fáil slogans were one was this picture of Jack Lynch saying unite with Europe and that was the late Brian Lennon who was Hillary's deputy um, for the referendum campaign uh, and, be, and of course the genius of it was that it implied that there might be a possibility of joining Europe leading on to United Ireland. And um, 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 that, as you know, is still the case, funnily enough. It's still a Mm -hmm. thing we talk about, uh, Europe and the, the future of the island of Ireland. So that was one. Unite with Europe was a great slogan from the late Brian Lennon. And the other one of which i'm very proud because it was one i came up with was markets in europe make jobs at home <laughs>
1: <laughs> with, with our
2: arrows you know going in yeah, yeah, yeah. two directions and that of course that is still true and has always <sighs> been true in terms of it's, Neville, the um Communicating
1: throughout the campaign, was there a big sense on education that was needed in terms of educating not just even the people, but like even perhaps Fenofol itself about your oh, oh yes, possibilities? Oh yes,
2: yes, yes. The, the thing I want to I, I'll come back to if you ask me later on about the professional backup we had as a committee, you know, from outside the 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 party and so on. But um, the answer to that is that. When we met um, for the first time, Hillary said to us, look, uh, <clears throat> we all know the importance of this and we all know the government have been working on it, planning, with it, preparing for all kinds of things, um, since particularly since the days of Lamas and all the Whittaker experience, all that kind of thing. So huge preparative work for accession and before the start of the negotiations um, had, been, uh, ha- had, had been done. And um, he said, look, he said, Fianna and I think it's probably still true in the small print, I don't know, is called the Republican Party. He said, we can't assume that the members of Fianna outside the government circles, so to speak, will understand the new concept of sovereignty and may think that there'll be a loss of sovereignty here which will cause uh, them problems. So he said, look, we're going to have to begin by educating our own members. Mm. So we ran a huge campaign. There was a a, a, a meeting uh, uh, of In every constituency in the country, every constituency in the country, um, there was a a meeting where um, they had to be prepared, A, to have appointed a director of elections themselves and to have a local team. It was compulsory that um, uh, all local councillors elect anybody with any status in the party should be there. It was compulsory. There had to be a minister there. uh, And uh, then also, uh, uh, again, the government had prepared a lot of information material which was available free from post offices and one thing and another. And uh, then there was an A4 page. When people came into the room, they got on their seat. They got the government uh, literature and they got an A4 page written by me and the A4 page would say what EC accession means for Carlo Kinkenny or wherever it was and that was again uh, that wasn't if you like solely me in the sense that all the doors were opened for me that um, Michael Killeen of the IDA, Tom Walsh of the Agricultural Institute the civil servants in various were all told that if I, I ever got onto them, looking for information, I was absolutely to be given this. So uh, these A4 sheets, um, you know, were the real thing. The info nuggets yeah. of their day, yeah. But I found, you know, because often we were going to debates around the country, and I'd find find myself um, there with, say, Garrett Fitzgerald. And Justin Keating. And Garrett had credibility as a European and an economist. And Justin Keating at the time was running farm programs. He had credibility in the agriculture way. And I often found it extremely difficult because they were bigger names than I was. And Garrett, um, often in my view, made claims for the impact on employment and so on that I didn't believe you could fully stand over, you know, on the basis of the briefings I'd had from industry and commerce and the IDA and one thing and another. And then Justin Keating, as you, you probably know, made outrageous claims about the likely cost of accession and the price of ordinary foodstuffs, mm-hmm. particularly like tea and so on, you know. Well, it's
1: it's funny, sorry to interrupt, Neville, but it's actually a good point to mention this. So in our work at the moment in EMI, going through all the archives um, yeah. for EU50... We found a pamphlet from 1972 uh, from the Vote No campaign, which is, and I'm going to read it to you and um, because this might further yeah. on the point that you're saying. So the title of the pamphlet is The Common Market and You, The Dangers and Difficulties of Membership. So they listed seven things which people are, are concerned about at the time. And if I could list them to you, which was one was the loss of our neutrality, two was the loss of sovereignty, three was the grave threat of full membership to employment, four was greatly increasing food prices, Five greatly accelerated rural depopulation. Six was greatly increased emigration, and seven was the effects of all this on Irish culture. So I suppose my, my question is: during the campaign, how did you combat those those points?
2: Well, first of all, there's nothing. There was nothing new there, for us in the sense that uh, at, at all these conventions which were held, um, I often sat at the back of most of them and wrote down the questions that were asked and so on. So we knew exactly what I'm looking for. And if I have a picture of it, is that one of the things that we did, which I don't know has been done before or since, for all our canvassers and one thing and another, we produced a little leaflet called At The Door. And it specifically answered all that kind of, of, of point. As you know, we're still debating uh, neutrality and so on, that's uh, that's still an, an open thing. But otherwise, um, uh, almost everything, as they say, for, for example, uh, we produce this little booklet called At the Door, where um, everybody could have in their pocket this little guide and the answers to all the questions. And I'm a person. Who always believes that the best answer to a question is either yes or no. <laughs> so that, um, uh, for, for example, um, that, um, you know, we had in it, for example, will this me- make abortion more likely? Answer, no. <laughs> and that was it, you know, so that a huge amount of these things, we already had the, um, we already had the answers. Uh, 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 pr- prepared in that sense, so our canvassers were not out on out on a on a, on a limb. It was called at the door to Europe.
0: And Neville, tell me, was there much um, engagement or cooperation amongst the yes, the pro? I mean, obviously, we know not every political party campaigned in favour of accession, yes. but but would you have engaged with your counterparts?
2: Yes and no. <laughs> And it's one of the things. <laughs> uh, one of the, my my personal regrets is every week. Uh, I think again organized through Dennis Corboy. There was a lunchtime. One of our
0: founders. Yeah. There was
2: a lunchtime meeting of all the people involved in the campaign, um, Fáil, Fine Finnegale, the Labour Party, and so on. Now again. Um, my attitude to a lot of things, and as I say, why I criticise myself is I always went to those meetings, but I never revealed exactly what Fianna Fáil was doing, and um, uh, and particularly the feedback and so on we were getting, because I uh, I felt if you're running a campaign, you need to uh, you don't want to be sharing too much of your information with uh, other people and so on so i personally regret that i didn't say more at those meetings where there was coordination um, going on you know which was important and useful but i i think you see they the 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 other parties had no idea of this huge education campaign we had launched in the background. They had no idea of that. And again, and it's a thing I always do, a thing, I don't just sit at headquarters. I would go out one night a week to some area that I knew in Dunleary Rathdown, and do a night's canvassing myself to see what the score really was. So that though we'd know opinion polls and so on I always remember in the Dorky area, which I knew extremely well, the Friday night before the poll when I went out, didn't find any no vote anywhere. And as you probably know, there was this huge turnout, mm. uh, which uh, nobody really imagined. And people actually queued up outside the polling station in Dorkey on whole polling day. Because another little thing, which I don't know if anyone had done since Tony Hederman, who was the Ad- Attorney General, he recruited a whole team of young barristers to come into Fianna Fáil headquarters uh, every night, so that we had the capacity, without the mobile phones, of ringing every director of elections every night to ask them how was it was going, had they put out their literature and one thing or another. So we had some idea of were people mm. doing the work on the ground and what was the feedback. So did this mean that um, come the eve of the referendum, were you confident of the results? Yes, yeah, we were very confident because I went to Hillary and I said, look, we, we need a speech for the day after the result. Do you want me to draft stuff? Uh, and he said, no. He said, I think I'll just go on television and smile. (laughs) Because we were confident enough, or he was confident enough, in that sense, that it would work out. You can do none of this kind of thing without having, um, you know, a professional press officer. And also, to give you some idea of what posters and stuff you need, you need an advertising agency so Desmond O'Kennedy was the key. His firm, and he, he was very good himself, was advised us in all that, and also the late Peter Owens was involved too in parts of it, coming up with ideas for leaflets and on one thing or another, so that apart from everything we were doing through the committee, um, we, it was the first time, and we annoyed a lot of people in um, constituencies because um uh, there's a thing i don't know if people still use the term knock and drop you know where you can put a leaflet in the letterbox and a lot and, and we, so we paid for that in some key areas and a lot of people were annoyed that you know given the work they had done um that another leaflet was put in that they they they, they didn't know about So we had a chap called Don Hall, who was the son of Frank Hall of Hall's Pictorial Weekly, uh, came into headquarters as the press officer and had his own secretariat and so on. And from him, we learned that, for example, we should only try to get one killer blow out each day and try to aim it and time it at the 9 o'clock news. So we worked very tightly. to that uh, was, was one of the things he did for us. Then, as I say, there was a, a chap who was really terrific, who was the practical guy for old Kennedy, who would tell you how many full-wall posters you needed for railway stations and one thing and another, and how many posters you should really have for every constituency and so on. But some of the things from which I learned a lot is that if you then want to give a quota of your publicity material to every td how do you do it and uh, you know so um irish printers paul kavanagh who came, i think became known as a, a fundraiser um, he gave me the use of a big warehouse and i recruited a couple of pals of mine to make heaps of the different size posters, and you've, you may know how heavy cardboard <laughs> is, and one thing or another, to make heaps of posters and so on, so that they could be picked up by um, TDs to bring to their constituency. Another absolutely key figure is that the Department of Foreign Affairs was not really equipped for big information campaigns and a wonderful woman who again died not long ago, Eilish McCurtain, who had been doing uh, press information for the post office and I think for RTE, she went into foreign affairs. I would um, drive up to the back of the Department of Foreign Affairs, you probably know there's a little road in from Earlsford Terrace, and every time we were coming up to a convention, uh, through her, we would put into the back of the car um, the leaflets that the government were producing, and I'd have my own leaflets and one thing and another. And uh, she also commissioned um, some uh, special cartoon type advertisements which were used in local, uh, local paper and one thing or another. And the question was who on earth was to pay for all this? And this. Is the, is the big thing, is the instruction of Hillary and the government was, look, this decision is probably <laughs> the most important decision Ireland will ever make. <laughs> and we don't want to be saying the day after, if only this, that or the other, he said, look, we're throwing the sink at this and it doesn't matter, you know, how much it costs, it's going to be paid for and hence money was given to the European movement to produce, I'm sure you have some of the little leaflets here and all the rest of it, and money was splashed out absolutely all around the place, and this led, after the referendum, to a couple of Supreme Court cases involving um, uh, Patricia McKenna, Tony Coughlin, and Raymond Crotty, And as you know, and I think it was a a wrong and ridiculous Supreme Court decision, but the Supreme Court took a decision that um, governments couldn't spend on information issues. And the net result, as you know, of that was that we're now in a situation where RTE, well, first of all, a a referendum commission has been set up, which has to produce its view for and against Mm -hmm and also RTE follow this ruling to the nth degree, and any Yahoo who says they have an interest in it and have a voice which should be heard will get their two minutes or three minutes on RTE or whatever it is. you know. So hence you have this massive range of no people often representing nothing at all except their own bit of enthusiasm. But RTE runs that very tightly and I personally think that's a decision that by the Supreme Court that should be looked at again because I, if, if you have a government elected with a clear majority and so on and has said what its policies are going to be, why on earth can, cannot they advertise so to speak? Um, what their view is in the information field. Do you know what's really interesting listening to you speak, Nebel, and it just
1: dawned on me was there a real sense that it was, at the time and I say this respectfully to all other referendums, that this was a, a one chance one shot referendum this was it, it wouldn't come again, it was like if we don't get yes now it wasn't going to come, was that a sort of a sense you had?
2: No, no the, the, the sense of importance was that this was it Ireland had to take its place among the nations of the world and like it or not we were dependent on, on Britain getting in mm. because of our relationship with Britain and so that we were uh, the, the negotiations led by Hillary ran in parallel with the negotiations with Britain and Denmark and Norway uh, again fortunately in the end post the goal the, the even though Ireland had applied before um, the definite application proceeded and was accepted uh, after the, the Britain was open to the negotiations and again it's extremely interesting because in one of the areas that's still controversial uh, fisheries for example where people claim that it was a bad negotiation and so on They don't remember or don't know that at that time we had virtually no fishing industry, you know, so there wasn't much uh, to show, you know, how, how important this was. And one of the things which people in foreign affairs at the time have confirmed to me that apart from the work they were doing themselves, that Hillary particularly spotted personally in the negotiations that special provision was being made for some um, fishing ports in the north, I think, or at least one fishing port in the north. And he immediately said, you know, this has to apply to uh, the the our, our situation, you know, and we have to uh, get some additional stuff in the, in the fishery side of things. And I remember because, again, I'm leaving out lots of things we were involved in, but you have to remember that at that time we knew... Ex- not a huge amount about the politics of Europe and how it worked but I was on the first Finafol group that went to visit the commission in Brussels which was led by Vivian de Valera uh, and, and, and there were a number of other TDs and myself and that was arranged partly through Dennis Coboy and Sean Kennan who was the first Irish Parliament representative I think or certainly was an ambassador to the um, community. And I remember, I suggested, because I think we were aware of the importance of social policy, and maybe Hillary had it in mind that that might be an area where he could do well in, in the commission. I went to visit, and that's how I learned that there are three political families in Europe, or were at that time, There were the Christian Democrats, there were the Socialists, and there were the Liberals. And we went to see each of those parties, and I went to the trade unions associated with them, who'd never met anybody from Ireland (laughs) before. Because, I mean, again, we couldn't expect foreign affairs to be involved with the unions and so on. But that's how I learned an awful lot, and I don't know if it's still true to this day, but in dealing with the Commission or members of the Commission, it's always important to know what are their politics and where they do they fit in the family or grouping Mm. in the European Parliament and so on. And that was a very difficult thing for Fianna Fáil because, again, we had to think about what um, group... Fina Fall might be associated with and some of them came to see us and some not and I would have been in favour of if there was some way of getting into the socialist group but there was no way because Justin Keating was already in there there was a very funny moment at the National Executive when the case was made that the Christian Democrats were the thing and Jack Lynch said and what would poor Benny Briscoe do then (laughs) <laughs> and <laughs> uh, you know this is the sort of thing on which things rise or fall you know and we ended up in uh, a group with the French as, as, as you know which was based on the idea of de Valera de Gaulle and agriculture and so on and um, uh, you know by and large it worked but it didn't work well And the French had huge troubles themselves within their own uh, within their own Mm -hmm. grouping. If
1: I could, if if I could bring in Neville then, perhaps to to the tenth of May, nineteen seventy-two, and even after that point, um, I'd be curious to know what was the mood of the country post yes vote. Was there a sense of elation? Was there a a notable, tangible reaction?
2: Well, it's said, I think, um, not from me, but um, uh, it's mentioned elsewhere that. There was very little kind of enthusiasm or a note uh, about it, and so on. And did I, I, I talked about even we couldn't have the fireworks? Yeah, absolutely. Or another. Yeah. So no, there was no uh, no. It was j- just another day, so to speak. You went. More on,
0: matter of the fact response. Mm, yes, the, yes, yeah.
2: yes. You went on television and you know, smiled, uh, and that that was about it. Um, we had to have conventions in the constituencies of Blaney and Haughey And Paddy Hillary arranged that Tom Walsh, who was the director of the Agricultural Institute and had a lot of to do with Blaney when he was Minister for Agriculture, that he would go and preside at the um, convention in in Donegal. And he said to me, he said, Look, Neville, you know Haughey, would you ever give him a call and ask him, what are we going to do about his convention? So I rang Hahi and had a chat with him and told him we were doing these conventions and we needed to have one in Dublin, Northeast or whatever it was. Normally a minister would preside. And Hahi said, wouldn't you do it yourself? No. <laughs> so I went out and I presided at the convention. And you see, we had experts where they were needed. And... Um, so we had a legal expert there, Owen Fitzsimons, to talk about legal aspects of things. And he later, as you know, became an attorney general as well. So, um, And also among the experts who weren't, were associated with Fianna Fáil, uh, but not so actively involved necessarily, you know, were people like Martin O'Donoghue and um, Michael Woods he later became a minister, of course, as well. They went, learned their trade, so to speak, in part by going to the conventions and talking as experts about the e- economics or agriculture or what have you. And also, which I thought was interesting, because, again, he was a very active European movement person, was that Louis Smith, the professor of economics in um, uh UCD, and I think a well known uh, uh, Finnegaler, but very well thought of in the agricultural world. He spoke at one of our conventions as an expert, you know, so that again, we were doing everything we could to make sure at these conventions that people were getting not just ministers and the, Professor Louis Smith actually. So he did at least one, uh, one convention.
1: Never. It's been it's been it's been absolutely fascinating listen to you. Um, I, I suppose the last question that I I, I would ask and um, is a question we've asked. I think every podcast guest we've had this year, and it's given the fact that we are currently celebrating the 50th anniversary since we yeah. joined what is yeah. now the EU. Um, I suppose it's the broad question of what are your reflections on how Ireland has changed since uh the 1972 and 1973, and how membership has impacted this country.
2: Well, I I think the big impact was just in our our prosperity because if you remember when we joined and i, I think there's a protocol or an article in the treaty about regional policy uh, that was extremely important because we're now among the more wealthy members of the uh, european community which is a massive change you know and and shows you know the huge benefit of EU, EU membership. So I, I would think that that's the biggest impact. Really, is that from being nowhere in terms of comparative wealth, we're now way up there. Do you know, so that I, to me, that is the biggest uh, achievement.
0: A, a question for me, if I may: Are you optimistic for the future? Do you continue to see? Ireland uh, continuing to, to influence and shape our our EU destiny or do you think we have uh, we have challenges ahead you outlined some of the
2: oh yeah no no I, I think we have uh, challenges ahead and if I could say for example to me uh, you know brexit was an absolutely disastrous decision because um. We lost a very important uh, member, even though they made the balls of it. If you pardon the expression, we we did lose an important member, and you know, and I hope history will look at somebody like Farage, and say, how on earth did this happen? You know, that is such a disastrous decision for the UK, and why I say it's a loss to the um, community is apart from the difficulties it has created for us, and where do we fit into whatever the new British arrangement uh, may be. A difficult area in the future is definitely going to be security and weight in foreign affairs. And like them or hate them, I mean, Britain represents a big military force within the community, And as you know, it and again, I think it it was a mistake the way it was handled. But it was it wasn't community assets. It was French and British assets which brought about the change in Libya and got rid of Gaddafi. And this is one of my uh, personal interests in in Europe, apart from being interested in uh, the European Community and the European Unity Union as a peace experiment I mean because it brought peace to Europe after you know centuries really if, if you like I'm also by personal conviction a Quaker so I'm often criticised by Quakers as how can I do all my European stuff and still be a, a pacifist in in, 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 in in the Quaker sense but I keep saying look if you look at the world as it is now We all want to do as much as we can for the developing world and in all sorts of areas. You cannot do anything without some security. You know, any operation, if it's to work, you need some uh, security. So I personally am not terrified by the idea of, and it's often overlooked as you know, there's police cooperation goes on, not just army cooperation, that is, goes goes on uh, as well uh, uh, already and there is in that sense uh, already a military aspect to the developing European Union but that's definitely going to be one of the big things which will cause difficulty for Irish public opinion and attitudes and so on because as you know Shannon is a good example and so on you know there. Uh, are very strong feelings in that area about any kind of military uh, cooperation. But as I say, I, just from my experience over over the years, uh, in the the same way, when I look at the energy situation, I, for example, am a person who believes that nuclear has to be in the mix because if we're to keep a, a grid going, Um, which is a 365 days a year business. We all have to have electricity. We need the best mix of input to feed the grid that we can possibly get and every uh, possible contributor needs to be touched on that and all the focus tends to be on gas and oil and so on but and of course, nuclear has its own problems. But again, that's a thing has changed over time. And in my view, um, it's possible to have a, s- a smaller and safer nuclear input uh, to the production of electricity then, than you know was the case uh, uh, when we first had to look at this and the ideas. You know, we might have had a nuclear um, a station at Karn but when that was studied, the biggest problem it faced was the possibility of a tidal wave. <laughs> and again, I mean, people overlook these things. And of course, we had a tidal wave in Japan you know, that did terrible da- damage and so on. But again, if we can a- apply our wits and respect uh, science and the more we learn and all the changes that, that there are, uh, we're going to face difficult situations like Owen, Owen, um, Ryan has had to face in the cop discussions and so on, you know, between um, the climate challenge, the um uh, Russian war challenge, and um, the overall economic mm-hmm. situation. We're going to face all sorts of challenges. But I'm fairly confident uh, that, uh, you know, we, we have the wit and the experience to be able to face up to it.
0: Well, isn't, isn't that a great note, Neville, on which to draw today's Just the Chats podcast to a very optimistic and positive conclusion? On my own behalf as Noel O'Connell, CEO of European Movement Ireland, my colleague Ryan Levis, and to our very special guest for today's Just the Chat podcast, Mr. Neville Keary. Thank you so much, Neville, for your time. To you, our listeners, make sure to listen back to all our podcasts and watch back on our events on our EMI player. If you're not already, please do follow us across all of our social media platforms. Until the next time, take care, Slongafol.